Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I am so glad you can be here with us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing some of the readings for the second week of Advent, focusing on our Gospel lesson, Mark 1, 1-8, and Isaiah 40, 1-11. With me today, I have three awesome guests. The Reverend Phil Hooper serves as curate at Trinity Episcopal Church, Fort Wayne, in the Diocese of Northern Indiana and the esteemed Leilanda Lee, who is a former lay member of Executive Council representing Province 6 and attends St. Stephen's in Longmont, Colorado. She has done asset-based community development trainings and worked on racial reconciliation for many years. And last but not least, the Reverend Marlene Forrest serves as the priest in charge at St. Philip's Episcopal Church and lives in Richmond, Virginia. Phil, what's important to keep in mind during Advent, especially this year? Hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking about this. Uh, I think this year, maybe more than ever in my mind, it's important to remember that Advent is about a whole lot more than just the arrival of the Christ child, that Advent is also about this vision of who we are becoming uh, and who God is promising that we will become uh, if we live into God's reality. Uh, because this year, perhaps more than ever, the the distance between the promise and the present, uh, it, it feels stark to me. Uh, so I think for me, a goal this Advent is to more than ever sort of resist the tendency towards sentimentality and to really live into the the truth telling the clarity that i think this season emphasizes thank you marlene well i i just had a conversation with my mom about this and i wanted to jump right to christmas and so for me it's it's intentionally taking time to say ah this is advent This is a season of preparation. This is a season to um, kind of saunter through the four four Sundays of Advent and not, you know, gallop through those four Sundays and just kind of be and prepare ourselves for the glorious arrival of our baby Jesus and to um, find glimmers of hope in every one of those Sundays and weeks of of Advent. so that we are not so hurried. And I think this year in particularly, um, in particular, that we will be a little slower about our pace because we don't have to rush out to go shopping because it's not as safe as it was last year. And so that's that, that, uh, that saunter, that's not going to be my word. I just want to be able to tell my folks, let's just saunter through Advent this year. Let's take it slow. Let's take a breath. Um, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah, so that that's what it is for me this year. Thank you. Leilanda? I, I feel like I've always been taught that um, Advent is both a season of preparation and kind of like Lent is also a season of uh, patience and waiting. And as I have been reading uh, the readings for this Sunday and also have done some other work uh, in terms of uh, looking at scripture, particularly at the season um, after Pentecost over the last three years for another project I've been working on, uh, I'm struck by the idea that patience, when we talk about patience, it's not really about our human patience. I think it's really about God's patience. And the fact that God exhibits steadfast love, but also in the scripture that I've been studying, uh, 
God and particularly Jesus also exhibit amazing patience. Uh, the amount of waiting that God does for us humans to get it together, mm. uh, whatever <laughs> we are called to get it together, is is astounding. Yes. And when I think about uh, in the reading how we, we see that um, for God, uh, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. That certainly is not the way that we humans experience the passage of time. And yet um, in, in this sort of strange time of COVID-19, and also as we move into um, Advent towards Christmas, I'm thinking maybe we have to uh, look to God for patience and that patience is another one of those gifts of uh, love and mercy that we receive from God. Mm -hmm. Let me stop there. Yeah, thank you. So what messages do our congregations need to hear this year especially? I was struck when I was uh, doing the um, readings for this Sunday at how uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, it says that John the baptizer proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I, I feel like for all of the baptisms that I've observed, for all the renewal of vows as a congregant in the pews that I have experienced, somehow the linkage between baptism and the forgiveness of sins doesn't seem to be quite as strong as maybe it ought to be that when I, when I look at these readings for this Sunday, I'm thinking uh, what we're really talking about is the cleansing that comes from the truth-telling of confessing our sins. And that I think that because we're so focused on God's all-encompassing love and God's great mercy, that we sometimes go straight into, and then we're forgiven our sins, amen. When really, we really have to spend some time doing the truth telling. And I think that that's one of the wonderful things about the way of love that has been established by Bishop Curry and by the church right now, is that there is a focus on beginning with truth telling. Mm. How about other folks? I, f I feel like right now we're living through this extended season of just really a, like a cultural desolation. Uh, and for me, when I was looking at the lectionary texts uh, for this week, it, it struck me that what we are hearing and experiencing in Isaiah, I think, has a resonance maybe for a lot of folks that it wouldn't have in prior years, especially folks from communities who have been more insulated by privilege, who have been more removed from some of the hardships uh, that mm. are experienced in other in other spaces uh but because of the pandemic because of political unrest because of economic you know just everything that's been going on i think i have noticed at least in my congregation a sense of people really experiencing a level of struggle within themselves and their own lives and their perception of the world uh that's that's has rattled them and so i and I think that's important and to, to what Leilanda was saying about the need for truth telling about those things and getting honest about those things because we can't we don't have the luxury of ignoring them, whereas in some in some spaces people have taken that luxury for granted. Uh, but alongside that truth telling, then also the message, oh, the words comfort, oh, comfort my people like that, that means something deeper uh, this year. I would say than ever before. And so sort of lifting up that contrast for our congregation, sort of naming the desolation and naming the hope and locating them in the present moment feels really important. Hmm. I, th I think for me as a, a pastor of a historically black Episcopal church, um, I really do think that um, what my people need to hear, what my flock needs to hear is that, yes, we may have been in the wilderness and continue to be in the wilderness, but it's okay to cry out, um, not only to cry out to each other, but to cry out to God and actually fist, shake your fist at God 
and say, God, what is all of this about? What, why are our people continuing to go through the same thing that we've gone through for 400 plus years? Um, and I think in, in that crying out, um, I want to continue to encourage my congregation to lament and to realize that the crying out that's in the street is a form of lament and that it's okay to lament and grieve and cry, but to also have that mustard seed glimmer of hope mm. um, that comes in the Christ child um, and that he will, he will make it that grand mustard seed tree. Um, but really, really getting them to realize that it's okay to cry out and that, you know, let's look at our scriptures. Let's look at Mark. Let's look at Isaiah. Where does it talk about crying out and that it being okay to cry out and that when we cry out to God, God hears our cries and God empathizes with us and sympathizes with us and holds us and cradles us and tells us it's going to be okay and that he's got it. He's going to take care of it. Yeah. I think of that when I think of the imagery in Isaiah at the end where it talks about, you know, um, feeding the flock like a shepherd, gathering the lambs in the arms and yeah. gently uh, leading the mother sheep. Um, and one of my questions that I had was kind of like, who, you know, it says comfort, comfort ye my people, which is actually one of my favorite number 67, one of my favorite hymns for Advent, but who do you think really especially needs to be comforted right now? And maybe who are the voices in the wilderness crying out that we're not listening to? Yeah. I, one of the things I was thinking about that, that very phrase of, of comfort is that especially in Isaiah, it, it's so important. I think for us, this is where our sort of contextual, understanding of where these scriptures come from really has bearing on how we approach them because God is speaking through Isaiah to a people who have been oppressed, removed from their homeland, who are in sort of the depths of despair and that comfort, that is a word of comfort being offered to them. So that's, that's not a word of comfort that's being offered to the king who has conquered. That's not a word of comfort mm. to the people who sit on the sidelines or have been the occupiers. That's a word of comfort for the people who suffer. And so for us, when we hear words of comfort, we also need to be asking ourselves, I think, like, do, am I the one who that word is for or am I the one being called to offer comfort? Mm. Um, through my solidarity, through my showing up, because that's a very different thing. These words don't apply equally to everyone. Amen. I think you're onto something, Phil. I like that, the idea of are we being called to um, be the ones to offer comfort? Um, I think about that a lot in terms of uh, how the laments, the, the crying out of the people often is uh, not only done verbally, but also done silently in terms of the, the grief and the burdens of grief that so many people carry that never get expressed in words. Mm -hmm. And yet somehow I think we as their siblings have to really uh, figure out how can we listen with all of our being, not just with our ears, but also with our eyes and with our feelings. And by taking in that listening through all of our faculties to then be able to turn around and offer comfort that is more complete than just saying the words that we've been taught by our enculturation. Mm -hmm. I, I so, so agree with that. You know, I, I've really been pushing my congregation during this particular time to be prayer warriors to really get deep into the word of God and to say, okay, I'm sitting with God. This is my physical part of, of prayer. I'm sitting here with God. What do I need to lament? Who do I need to pray for? Who do I need? Who do I need to comfort? Um, you know, being African-Americans in this particular time, um, there's not a lot of comfort. And so who do we reach out to in order to make it almost like a cycle that you're, I'm comforting someone else and someone else is able to comfort someone else. And it goes on and on and on. And, you know, it's that pay it forward kind of concept. Um, 
But I really, you know, in this particular moment that we are in in time, I think that our young folks need comfort. Um, I think they are really the ones crying out in the wilderness as they're protesting, as they're marching, as they're uh, pushing voter registration and rights and all kinds of stuff like that. But where are they getting comfort? Where are they getting relief? And um, I think it is the the responsibility of us elders uh, to make sure that they are getting that comfort. They are getting those warm and fuzzy strokes to say, you know what, you are doing God's work and you are doing a fabulous job at it. And what can I do for you? How can I pray for you? How can I be an ally with you in this this struggle? Yeah. Yeah. I like what you said, uh, Marlene. I think that young people, as, as you pointed out, especially need to hear words of comfort. And for me, I think of affirmation. Mm-hmm. as being a very big part of that kind of sharing of comfort. That so many people, um, you think about the people you encounter on a daily basis, the grocery store clerk or the person at the gas station or the person handing you your food at a, at a window, uh, they don't hear very many affirmations about who they are and what they are doing in the moment they might get a big mm-hmm. affirmation on their birthday or at, you know, if they receive some sort of award at school or at work. But what about the other times when people just need um, a word of affirmation that says, I see you, mm-hmm. I really see you. And what you're doing is okay. Yeah. You're okay. I'm okay. We are okay together. Yeah. 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 One of the questions that I had was kind of who are the prophets of today? And maybe the prophets of today are the young people. I know um, we often think about uh, youth as being the future. Rosa's like, you are the future. And really, <laughs> I think we have to remember that they are also the present. And so yes. you, if you look at like what happened in a lot of like, um, protests after George Floyd's murder and things, they really just like took to the streets and they really took the lead, the fearless lead in many ways. And I think you know, a lot of the churches were like, how can we support them and still be isolating because of COVID? And maybe um, some of that could be, you know, us supporting them in different ways, not just with affirmations, but maybe with action too. Like, how can we, you know, I heard about people organizing this whole like food distribution thing in DC where they would come out and get the lunches and stuff out to folks out on the street. Um, There's so much I think you're right, Shaniqua. There's so much we can do to provide comfort. And as Marlene was talking, I, I was also thinking that part of our specific vocation as the church is to, in providing comfort in this moment, is to root what is happening in the greater story of God and God's movement through history, right? So like part of the comfort that we can offer to anyone who's out protesting and volunteering and trying to make change in the world is to say that like, even in those moments where it feels like what you're doing is sort of spitting into the wind, actually, when we step back, when we look at the whole story of God and God's people, like you, you are part of that movement yourself. And so for me, at least I know Comfort also involves knowing that I am held, that I'm held by a community, that I'm held by a story, by a purpose, by a vision that's bigger than myself. And sometimes that gives me strength to, to do the hard things. Mm-hmm. So who do you think are the messengers of, of God's coming? Um, you know, Isaiah is one of the prophets, and one of the messengers of God's coming. Who are some of the messengers of God's coming? Or maybe God's promise? I love the... Um good news stories that we get from time to time. Uh, Phil was mentioning uh, when young people take action, whether it's something as simple as just providing meals and not worrying about administration and organization and budget and following all the rules and having it be perfect. Good enough is good enough. And I think that part of uh, the kind of transformation that we are called to through our baptisms is not just turning away from sin, but actually moving towards what is good and holy and um, kind and loving that, that really exemplifies following Jesus. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I always love the new commandment that the standard is much higher than loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, but loving our neighbor as Jesus loves us. I, I think that is very profound. I think for, for me, some of the the prophetic voices that, that I've been hearing and, you know, even from the grave, um, John Lewis and Ruth Bader Ginsburg mm. um, and those that have gone for continually, the ancestors speak. Um, and I think they're speaking through our, our young people um, prophetically. Um, and I, I've just been really taken by being able to be in relationship with uh, millennials and being in relationship with elders that have given me bits of wisdom um, that, you know, we've been here before and we've made it through. And if we can get through what we've been through before, we can get through this. Um, it's not as as bad as it could be. And that, uh, you know, sitting at their feet allows you to have some type of glimmer of hope and realizing that um, being prophetic is not necessarily about uh, proclaiming what is happening in the future. It is about speaking truth right now, speaking Mm. truth to power, speaking truth to our children, allowing our elders to speak truth to us, that that prophetic voice is speaking the truth right now. And I think a lot of that is going on um, in our country today that probably never has happened before. And you know, I say, you know, prophesy to the breath um, and let the breath and the Holy Spirit and our ancestors do what they do best. Um, and that is just to, to be a comfort to us and to allow us through them to have some prophetic wisdom. I love that, Marlene. Yeah. I think because people oftentimes, we still, when we talk about being prophetic, people still, you hear a lot, people think it's about the future, right? The, mm-hmm. the coming age that's often some hazy distance when, when I think you're absolutely right. It's much more about bringing what is eternally, urgently true to bear on this moment now to, to proclaim those values as they're reflected now or are more importantly not being reflected now and, and where they need to be reflected. Mm. Uh, for, yeah, for me, when I, I see prophetic voices and movements at work, wherever there is that challenging of this sort of, you know, oppressive, deadening status quo, and that can happen in, you know, in, fam- in famous people, that we hear about. I, I think of people like Greta Thunberg, you know, talking about climate justice and, and climate change. Um, but then just standing in the crowd of people who came out to protest for Black Lives Matter after George Floyd was murdered. I mean, that that itself was like a prophetic moment of people, I felt like speaking in one voice that was not, you know, there was no one spokesperson for that for that moment necessarily, but there were so many voices crying out, sort of joining together in one prophetic statement. So powerful. It's um, a great question that you asked um, Shaniqua about who are the prophets, what are the prophetic voices. I think of current day prophets and perhaps you know prophets throughout the ages as being people who are able to name things. Again, it's back to that truth-telling thing. And my concern as um, an elder, and I'm 71, I'll be 72 next March, um, I worry about people who are older than the young prophets out on the streets today. I worry that through our um, sharing of so-called wisdom or giving advice, or sharing quote unquote insights or our experience that we may in some way be um, hampering what the young prophets are doing and Mm. what they are saying. And that through our voices, even though we are older and have more experience, our voices potentially could be ones that somehow uh, create boundaries where there need not be edits and that we change the message somehow. 
I worry about that for us as individuals. I also worry about that a great deal for the institutional church. Mm. Mm. I think, yeah, that's a whole dichotomy, right? Of like where your change is happening. And sometimes the folks are like, no, we need to have the, the old way or the old way is the better way. And then it's like, no, no, we have to do this. <laughs> so uh, last question about Isaiah, but what, um, what suggestions do you have for preaching the Isaiah text? That is a good question. Um, and, you know, glad I had the opportunity to really jump into it a little, little, little bit more. Um, and the, the things that just keep jumping out at me are about the voice um, and the crying out and that um, wanting to free people to use that voice um, and not just use it, the, the vocal part of our voice, but using all of it, our Jewish and brothers, our Jews and Muslim brothers and sisters use the entire body when they speak with God. And that's part of their voice. And I think for me, I, that's one of the things that I know I'm going to encourage is to use your entire body to worship. My grandmother always says, you carry your worship wherever you go. The body is a temple. We carry it wherever we go. And so with that, use that voice. Use the, use the voice of your feet and your hands and your heart and your eyes in order to proclaim what the good news really is and what the hope is in moving towards that preparation for, for Christmas. And um, that, the, uh, that, that Isaiah text, that crying out, um, is something that I really think that as preachers, we need to give people permission to do. Mm. Go ahead and cry out. It is okay. And I think even I'll say this, and it may sound a little sexist, folks who identify as male and don't necessarily want to cry out, I think we have to free them to do that, to say, I am going to cry out right now. And this is, you know, how I need to do it. I need to jump into this scripture, this Isaiah scripture, and figure out how I can cry out with my whole body. And it may be going out to protest, or it may be going out to take meals to somebody or praying for somebody. How can we do that, you know, like Jesus did it? Jesus cried out all the time in all kinds of ways. And how do, how do we give our folks permission to do that in the word that we preach to them? Mm. And after we've given them permission, how do we let them know that we really heard them, that we really listened, and we, we really got what they were telling us? Yeah. I think that part of the, of the communication equation often gets truncated, mm. especially in church. Um, I, I so object as a lifelong Christian uh, to the fact that the only response we have formally in, in a worship service is a sermon or homily given by one person, when really the whole congregation should be called, you know, to the bottoms of their feet to get up and like really just respond mm. with who they are and what they are and what they're feeling. But, you know, occasionally you see a tear or two in the pews and you might see someone um, you know, obviously very moved by, by what's been said. But what about the rest of us? What, what are we holding in? God is calling all of us. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. And it for for this text specifically and in, in thinking about preaching it, I also what both of you said makes me think again of this idea of comfort. What does it mean to be comforted? Who is being comforted? When we speak of comfort, we're not just talking about the avoidance or suppression of what is bad. We're talking about facing it, releasing it, and then living into what lies beyond it. I, mm. I don't know about you all, but you know, if I'm going through a really bad time, one of the things that helps me most is to have a really good cry about it, mm -hmm. you know, because there's a release and then mm. an emptying. And then that maybe that can be filled by a new word of hope. Uh, but, but that release has to happen. 
it kind of goes back to that thing about emptying ourselves. Um, and how can you give anything more when you're so full? Mm. You know, that we have to, in some kind of way, empty ourselves so that we can be filled out with the glory of God. Um, and, you know, empty again and God pours more in and empty again and God pours more in so that we can let it pour out for others. So they see the God in us and they're like, oh, wait a minute. I want some of what she's got in her picture. You know, how do I, <laughs> how do I, how do I get some of that, yes. that Jesus that she's mm-hmm. got? Um, but, you know, you can't pour from an empty pitcher. And so you've got to allow God to come in and the Holy Spirit and Jesus to come in and fill you up and spread that to other people. And then you go back in and you get more and you get more, more Jesus, more God, more Holy Spirit in order to be able to pour it out to everybody. Emptying and filling sounds like good Advent stuff to me. Yeah. <laughs> I love the image that you provided, Marlene, the idea of the overflowing uh, uh, cup that we have. Yeah. Also, I, I want to point out, think about what falls out of the cup and how we probably need to do a better job of emptying the cup, yeah. getting rid of old ideas, getting rid of uh, assumptions that we've had for a long, long time. Uh, things that we have loved and valued and cherished that just need to go away. Mm-hmm. I was talking to somebody, I think when I was first discernment, I met with a spiritual director or whatever. And I was like going off about something and she was like, so how much space in your heart is filled with anger and, mm. <laughs> and anger and upsetness? And I was like, Oh, probably like all of it. And she was mm. like, if you don't let some of that go, where's the space for the Holy Spirit to mm-hmm. come in and do some of the work that it needs to do? And, yeah. and that really got to me. And I really had to think about that. And it really caused a shift in my, <laughs> in my mm-hmm. thought process. Right. So uh, let's switch over and talk a little bit about, well, or talk a lot about uh, the gospel. So we have Mark, um, you know, we have uh, John the Baptist, kind of that story. And we have, you know, uh, in the even in the gospel quotes that uh, Isaiah, um, what what stands out for you as you read as you read this gospel? For me, I just loved that, and I, I I love this about John the Baptist. Period, that he's always pointing to someone else. He's always pointing to Jesus. That he knows he knows his he knows his lane. <laughs> And he stays, he stays in his lane and he does what he knows God has called him to do to be the baptizer. Um, And that um, he's, you know, he's humble enough to know what his role is and what he is doing, that he is the preparer um, for this way that is coming. Um, And that, that for me has always been lovely. And I love, I love the, the fact that John the Baptist is just a regular dude, you know, with his camel hair and eating locusts. And, you know, maybe he's, maybe he's got his, you know, his Birkenstocks on, or maybe he doesn't, you know, maybe he's barefoot, but he knows what his role is, no matter what, what he's clothed in, that he can go out and and do what he knows God has called him to do. And he's going to, he's hooking his cousin up, you know, his cousin Jesus up to, to do this work. Um, that he is kind of laying the, the ground ground groundwork for. Um, and so I just love that he's just, he knows what he's supposed to be doing. He knows his call, he knows his purpose, and he lives into it. Yes. John John has made a clear choice. He, he as you say, Marlene, he knows his purpose and he has chosen to embrace it. And in so doing, he has also made a clear choice that he is not going to operate within the system as it functions. He literally removes himself to the wilderness and people have to come to him to get that word. Mm-hmm. And mm. there's something, I think there's something powerful in there for us to say, how are, how are we willing to extricate ourselves from the systems that cloud our vision and our hearing and our understanding in order to get that word? Yeah. Phil, what you said, made me think about uh, the people who um, today in the current crisis that we're in with COVID-19, how, how people choose to leave the system 
and what kind of um, what kind of way are they preparing for the rest of us? And do we recognize it? Um, how can we see it more clearly? I, I don't know if I'm making a lot of sense. The thought is just form, formulating, but your your speaking, Phil, really brought that on. Mm. Mm. I I wonder if the only way we can understand what way is being prepared is if we're willing to go out there and and be alongside them at least for a time to leave our comfort zone to to take seriously what what they're doing i don't know i think about aesthetics like how they kind of like you know remove themselves and they're out mm-hmm. in the wilderness and then mm-hmm. um sometimes i think of john i remember hearing a sermon preached about this john is a in lakota culture we have something called a hayoka which is like a contrary or a backwards person. And they're a special role in the culture and they're very, very holy people. Um, but they, they, they do the opposite and, and they do that opposite to help us think. So like they might dress really warm in the summer and wear almost nothing in the winter, or they may go around complaining about how full they are when everybody is starving, but their contrariness helps call us to a deeper faith or appreciate mm-hmm. the good times because they can remind us of the bad times or in the bad times, they can remind us of the good times and the kind of like that afflicting, afflicting the comfortable and challenging, challenging our apathy. And I think John is kind of like that because he was unusual. You know, he kind of dressed like a prophet. He ate funny foods and he was there to challenge the people at the time and call them into a new, a new, a new life. Yeah, I'd like to point out um, a, a sort of reversal, if you will, of where the wilderness is and who that lone voice is, because uh, from my personal experience, but I also think I speak um, probably representing a lot of uh, uh, people who are marginalized inside the church, who are in the church. Um, I am the only um, person of color in my white congregation, suburban mm. congregation. And it's pretty much been that way the entire 20 years I've been um, here in, in this city and, and at that church. But it's the idea of uh, what if the wilderness is all of the forms uh, and institutions and organizations and establishments that we have? Mm. And what if the person who is the prophet who is the um, gatherer, like John, uh, willingly goes into that wilderness mm. and suffers all of those slings and arrows. Wow. So what if that's what's happening? That is really profound. Hmm. That's a very good thought. Yeah. I love that, Lailanda. Yeah. Or even the people in our church, how isolated it could be if you are the only whatever in your congregation or you know, or people are expecting you to always adjust to them. How, how difficult could that be? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I think what happens is that then um, it causes one to have um, a different way of re- perceiving and receiving the world. It's what you said, Shaniqua, in your story about that contrary person who then causes transformation within the system. And I think about um, how if we don't have the grit of sand in the oyster shell, we don't get pearls. Mm-hmm. If we don't conflict the comfortable, we also don't get any healing. I mean, you may not feel you have a new wound, but you also aren't healing from any of the hidden wounds. Mm-hmm. So there is that. I, I think that's the importance of listening to um, contrary and uh, unique and marginalized voices. Yeah, I think it's helpful. That's really helpful to think about the wilderness, perhaps more of a, as more of a social spiritual landscape than just sort of just the physical landscape that we that we tend to imagine in the in the passage itself. Because the thing, it you know, the thing with the wilderness metaphorically speaking, is that those those who are not thrust into it by virtue of their life experience or social location or, or, you know, whatever, you can only avoid the wilderness for so long. You can resist being sent into the place where you do not want to go, but that you will ultimately 
it will come and find you at some point in your life, mm. one way or another. A sense of isolation, a sense of loss, a sense of alienation, that, that comes for all of us. And privilege, to the extent that it functions, it, you know, is, a, is not a permanent barrier against those things. And so for those of us like myself who have enjoyed a great deal of privilege, frankly, um, you know, we need to be willing to go into those places or we need to accept that those places are going to come and find us and we need to be ready for what happens when it does. And I would go so far as to say that at this moment in our culture, in our society, uh, here in the United States at least, um, the wilderness the wilderness is upon us in, in a sense. And you're seeing all kinds of reactions to that, especially from people who thought that they would never have to go there. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, very true. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's just so interesting. That made me think of something I saw earlier in the pandemic where there were some people who were likening the wearing of a mask and being in quarantine to slavery. Oh my, yeah. And, you know, that just had the hair standing up on the back of my neck. And I'm saying, if you think this is slavery, then let me show you something. Um, And it was just amazing that they would make that statement just to, you know, do you really know what slavery was all about? Do you know what the Middle Passage was about? Do you know you know, what my ancestors went through to get here um, and to to still be. And it just, it was just amazing. But when you, when you are so isolated in a seat of, of perceived privilege, you don't see, sometimes you choose not to see mm-hmm. what else is happening on the margins. Mm-hmm. Um, and not saying that People are marginalized, but there are things that are happening happening on the margins of where you are that don't allow you or you don't open your eyes enough to see. And so now, you know, with the quarantine and the mask and all this other stuff, they're seeing, oh, this can touch me. I'm not so isolated and protected like Phil was talking about from all this stuff yet. You know, even our president can get COVID-19, mm-hmm. you know, and what does that say? And are is your view going to change um, because of that? Um, but to liken it to slavery, I thought was ridiculous. But hopefully for some, maybe it, it has been a wake up call that, you know, you are now in the wilderness. What are you going to do about that? How are you going to change what are you going to clothe yourselves in in order to make this world the dream that God has for it? Yes. Who are you going to turn to? Mm-hmm. And who will those people be like? Mm-hmm. What will those people be like? And I think that's a really good question for us as the um, church that um, professes to be shepherds for all of the people who come to us and who are in our vicinity somehow. What, what do we do? How do we do it? Um, how do we change ourselves? Because I think for me, when I think about what do we do for the church or at the church when I'm in a planning meeting or whatever, I always come back to, well, who are we first before what it is that we're going to do? Mm-hmm. And, and in that figuring out who we are, remembering we're not God. Yes. God is God. And God's going to do what God's going to do. And we don't have that responsibility that God has. And so, you know, kind of stepping back and and realizing, wait a minute, I can't judge those people because I'm not God. I can't change those people. That's a God-sized task to change some people. (laughs) Right. And so (laughs) I don't want that responsibility. I can pray about it. I can, you know, ask God for hearts to be softened, for wisdom to come, but the big stuff, that's God's job. And I, I'm here as a co-creator and a, and to, to pray and to gird my people up and to help to push them in the way they should go. But some of that other stuff, God's got that. I don't have it. I'm not God. 
That's right. And, and don't want to be God because that's too much responsibility. <laughs> like you said earlier, Marlene, like John, we got to stay in our lane. Yeah. <laughs> we can say prepare the way of the Lord, but the way is the Lord's way. Exactly right. Know your role. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of folks in church who might need to hear that. Know your role. <laughs> know your role. <laughs> so yes. what about thinking about baptism? I, I remember in, I think it was like liturgics, they talked about, you know, um, water having this duality, right? We need it to live, but it can also kill us, right? We can drown in it. Um, and sometimes I think there are other things in our society that are kind of like that, like money, for example, you know, that can be mm-hmm. something that you sort of need to survive. And at the same time, uh, it can also, you can drown in it or it can cause all kinds of other problems that can come out. Um, what do you think about baptism? What do you think about the water? I, I think people forget that baptism isn't a one-time deal that every day we are born again, we are saved by the grace of God every single day. And that it's not just about that one time when, you know, we were in church and we were babies and we got sprinkled. Or it's not just about that one time where you, you know, you went to your grandma's Baptist church and you you got saved and you got went to the river and you got baptized. It happens every single day that the the Holy Spirit washes over us every single day and we're in relationship with Jesus every single day and God by the his grace by God's grace saves our wretched souls every single day and that you know when we when we get up in the morning and we open our eyes when we're able to open our eyes that's a new day that's baptism I open my eyes and all of the glory of God is washed over me like water. And I am raised again in the, in the baptism and that we, we forget that. And that we, you know, it's not a one-time deal. We have to live into that baptismal covenant. You know, people say it on our behalf or we say it ourselves for a reason, because we're now saying, Oh, I gotta, I gotta do this stuff. I can't play around. I made some promises to God and God's not, God's not playing. (laughs) God wants me to do this stuff, but you know, every day we're, we're baptized. And I think the beauty of it is that we can, that water of baptism can wash away all of that stuff that happened yesterday. And when we wake up in the morning, we're made, we're a new creature. We're transformed Mm -hmm. and we can make choices about whether we continue that transformation and become resurrected or we do some crazy stuff and have to you know, get down and repent for things, but knowing that in the morning we can be born again. What you say, Marlene, about, you know, what we need to do in that baptismal covenantal relationship, I think is important, really important. I think a lot of times with baptism, I think there's more focus on what God is quote unquote doing for us in baptism, saving us, healing us, adopting us, you know, the, whatever language we use. And we forget that any covenant is a relationship of mutuality. And so mm. we, have a, we have an ongoing part to play in that reality, that baptismal yes. reality. Um, and I, 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 to that point, I think in this passage from Mark for this week, I, I love the fact that you see in the ministry of John the Baptist, sort of the like this two, the two part, nature of baptism, because he's talking about baptism of water, and then Christ will come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And of course, we experience all of that sacramentally and liturgically as one sort of one ritual moment. But I think it's I think it bears reminding that there's, there's a part for us to play, which we might assign with this moment of baptism of water that John is doing, this sort of role of repentance, of conversion, of ongoing commitment, of of stepping outside of that which deforms and disfigures human flourishing. And then there's the part that God does for us, the part the the healing, saving, life-giving, grace-filled gift. They are they are connected, they are intertwined, but both are necessary and we have a part in that. 
I really appreciate what both um, Marlene and Phil have said about the duality in in baptism that there is or or the duality is probably not the right word really the the um, co-inhabiting of that space of both God's grace and the call for the human response uh, which ultimately is about repentance and repentance can be translated into truth-telling. And the more I focus on that, and especially in preparation for this podcast, I've thought about it in terms of how perhaps we have set up so much um, liturgy, so much structure around the act of baptism that we have somehow diminished this other piece, which is the commitment uh, that we make in all the different vows in the baptismal covenant, that uh, the call to repentance is a call to action on our part, and yet our action initiatives uh, that we interpret from the church tend to be about action towards others. And really, we are also called to truth-telling about who we are, really understanding our identity as a child of God. I'm not sure that I see that happening. As a layperson, I find that very um, dismaying. Mm-hmm. They talk about repentance, and I don't know, I didn't check the Greek, but if the repentance they use is metanoia, like changing your way of thinking, mm-hmm. you know, that might be, what might we as a church be, be called to in terms of changing our way of thinking? Do you know the story of uh, Glide Memorial um, Church in San Francisco, mm-hmm. in the Tenderloin, and how it got started, and that when... Um, the pastor first uh, got there. The very first thing he did was he removed the cross from above the altar. Yeah. And I remember attending services there and sitting on the back of a pew at the very back of the uh, sanctuary and observing the service. And I think that the institutional church is too institutional and all the pomp and glamour and so forth. You know, it's like a Pope fashion show instead of a Barbie fashion show. But somehow we've really moved far away from where the church should exist, which is in the hearts and minds and bodies, in the body temples of the people. And instead, I think the focus tends to be on uh, what is the correct music for today? What are the um, liturgical readings? I have to get permission if I use a different one. Um, Who wrote the prayers of the people? And on and on about all of the details when maybe what we need to do in terms of doing church is to sit together as a community and share our truth-tellings and our laments and to let that be church instead of all mm. of the stuff that we do in a service. Hmm. I will I will confess, Leilanda, I, I, I come from a, maybe a little different perspective on, on some of that. Uh, I... I guess if you if I wanted to take on a label, I, I would identify myself as a as a progressive Anglo-Catholic, and for me, a lot of the uh, the beauty of liturgy has has been deeply formative. Um, that being said, I think that any time that beauty gets separated from justice, I think we're really we're we're in danger of getting lost and we're almost bound to get lost because then it just evolves into a sort of pretentious ceremonialism, which is what I was kind of hearing perhaps uh, in in some of what you were saying. All beauty, however our communities worship, and there are so many ways to praise God, but however our communities worship and express their praise of of divine mystery uh, through sacrament, through song, it always has to point back to the truth-telling, the justice-seeking, the righteousness, the liberation hmm. of this reality that God is constantly unveiling through scripture, through our baptismal life, through all of these things that we practice together. And if we ever lose sight of that, then then there is truly no point to anything that we're doing. Um, I still hold on to hope, frankly, that that some of that some of that traditional beauty still has a place in our tradition. Um, but I think we are called constantly to a repentance, a turning, a conversion. Uh, anytime we let that be the center of of our focus, uh, versus 
letting Jesus be the focus and the Spirit's movement in our life be the focus. Uh, and I, I certainly try in my own personal discipline to, to remember that too if I start to get too anxious about liturgical perfection. Uh, my field at Parish was in Church of the Advent of Christ the King, which is like nosebleed high in San Francisco. And I remember um, wondering about that same question that Levanda sort of raised. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so much clothes and genuflecting and it's like church aerobics and Pilates and all this stuff. And um, it really pushed me outside of my comfort zone. And at the same time, you know, it took uh, the rector there uh, to sort of explain a couple of things. Like he didn't have that perfection idea. He was like, you know, we always make one mistake when we do beadwork. We should always make at least one mistake when we do liturgy. And what I noticed was that the goal of all of that beauty was to give folks an opportunity to come out from whatever struggles they are having and to be able to see that and feel like feel a glimpse maybe of what the kingdom might be like. And then I saw that they lived that. That was my big difference was like every Sunday we went and did service at the homeless shelter. We had a lot of homeless folks or unhoused folks who came into the church service, also folks with mental illness who were there and they were accepted and loved just like any other member of the congregation, which was very surprising to me because I've seen folks not be welcoming. Um, and and um, and people gave up their, like every holiday they went out and they fed everybody. Um, and those people that are the congregation there, they gave up their holidays to do that. They, they weren't out boating on the lake or whatever. They were out um, serving folks and, and being the kingdom out uh, in the world. Yeah, for me, the bottom line is, you know, I love the, the liturgy of the Episcopal Church. I love it, I love it, I love it. But if there are things that don't happen, worship still happened and God is still praised. And so if a candle doesn't get lit, I'm sorry, Miss So-and-so on the third (laughs) row, I know, you know, you're probably getting ready to fall out, but guess what? God was still praised. Did you see how God Mm -hmm. was still praised? Um, you know, that at that acolyte didn't genuflect. And you know what? It is OK. Did you see the joy in their heart as they processed out with the cross? You know, so, you know, God is still praised. You know, we you know, we worship all kinds of different ways in the Episcopal Church. And it's beautiful. All the kind of ways that we do worship. Um, but it's none of it is perfection because none of it is um, the Jesus the body of Jesus. And so he was the only perfect being, um, the only one who could do it perfectly. And so if we make a mistake, then, you know, it's okay. As long as God is still praised and, you know, if if a, a, a hallelujah and a amen come out, you know, in your high church, then, you know, it just <laughs> happens. And, you know, embrace it and say, oh, they were praising God. And, um, you know, if, if something else happens in, in your, as they say, your snake belly low church and people don't even move at all, it's okay too. They're praising God in their own way. And so as long as God is praised, I think it's all good. Our liturgy, our liturgy itself is kind of like John the Baptist. Our, the, <laughs> the, liturgy, the liturgy is the, the vividness of God's creation yes. that points to God. Mm-hmm. It prepares the way for God. It is mm-hmm. not God itself, but it is it is a good and holy thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're almost out of time, but I want to ask what what suggestions do you have for preaching preaching this text, uh, the Mark one. I'm I'm really thinking that it to point to it not being about us, that it it is about a period of waiting and preparation as we await Jesus to come. We await that precious little bundle of joy to come and be the hope and the light of the world. And how can we, as people who believe, kind of sit in that waiting period sit in it so much so that each day we are preparing something for Jesus. We are preparing our voices. We are preparing our hearts. We're preparing our families to have this wonderful, almost baby shower, (laughs) you know, on Christmas, Christmas day when, when Jesus is born to, you know, do the, 
have do the things that we would do to prepare, you know, if we were having a baby, you know, do nest, if you will, you know, well, you know, I've got to make sure this is done and I've got to make sure that is done. And so I think encouraging our folks to really intentionally prepare for this, this wonderful thing of the birth of Jesus and to not, not move through it so quickly, as I said earlier, to just saunter through Advent, just to, you know, I'm, I'm just going to meander through Advent and um, prepare as I think God is preparing me to do to prepare for um, the hope that is coming into this world. I think that one of the things that might happen uh, in terms of preaching during Advent, especially this year, is uh, an invitation to people to um, be intentionally connecting to other people. Because without being in church each Sunday and other days during the week to prepare for the season, uh, whether it's choir practice or, or the um, altar guild, uh, people don't have a way that they can point to that looks like and feels like intentional connection. And perhaps this is a place where the church can help, whether it's um, a sharing of uh, names and addresses for um, note cards or for intentional prayer, but something that um, is, is a way of connecting. And I think, I think for me, as I look at these, at this gospel reading, I've, I've received the advice at various points along the way that, you know, when you're preaching, maybe you should just focus on one of the lectionary texts and not try to cram them all in. But, uh, this week with these texts, I think this is a great opportunity to really use both Isaiah and Mark and and really yeah. highlight the continuity that exists between them. I mean, you know, Mark is quoting Isaiah, so that so it's fairly easy to do that. Mm-hmm. But to really to really say that like what John is representing, what he's proclaiming, the way of the Lord that he's preparing, this is really this points back to that exile reality that Israel faced uh, at a time in its history and was continuing to struggle with in new ways. Uh, I think really showing that 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 narrative is one that has been going on for generations and generations, and frankly, is one that we're still caught up in in new ways right now uh, as a people in, 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 in a in a big advent within the liturgical season of advent, uh, I, I think would be a good way to go. That wilderness of being in COVID, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people might be preparing yeah. sermons when they can't actually be physically in church. Um, what might that, <clears throat> that's going to be a really interesting thing. And maybe that can be a, yeah. a, a connecting point. Yeah. And we don't know what things are going to look like at Christmas time, I guess, sitting here right now. But worship gathering might look a lot different than mm-hmm. in years past. And so, yeah, that wilderness feeling, I think, is is staying with us for a while. Well, thank you so much uh, for being willing to participate. And I really appreciate you all being here. Um, And uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have today. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Phil, Leilanda, and Marlene. And thanks to our production team, especially Chris and Allie. If you were moved by what you heard today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine.
You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.